Introduction to Thus Spake Zarathustra, a book for all and none. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. Introduction by Mrs. Foster Nietzsche. How Zarathustra Came Into Being. Zarathustra is my brother's most personal work. It is the history of his most individual experiences, of his friendships, ideals, raptures, bitterest disappointments, and sorrows. Above it all, however, there soars transfiguring it the image of his greatest hopes and remotest aims. My brother had the figure of Zarathustra in his mind from his very earliest youth. He once told me that even as a child he had dreamt of him. At different periods in his life he would call this haunter of his dreams by different names. Quote, but in the end, unquote, he declares in a note on the subject, quote, I had to do a Persian the honor of identifying him with this creature of my fancy. Persians were the first to take a broad and comprehensive view of history. Every series of evolutions, according to them, was presided over by a prophet and every prophet had his hussar, his dynasty of a thousand years. All Zarathustra's views, as also his personality, were early conceptions of my brother's mind. Whoever reads his posthumously published writings for the years 1869-82 with care will constantly meet with passages suggestive of Zarathustra's thoughts and doctrines. For instance, the ideal of the Superman is put forth quite clearly in all his writings during the years 1873 to 75, and in, quote, We Philologists, end quote, the following remarkable observations occur. Quote, How can one praise and glorify a nation as a whole? Even among the Greeks, it was the individuals that counted. The Greeks are interesting and extremely important because they reared such a vast number of great individuals. How is this possible? The question is one which ought to be studied. I am interested only in the relations of a people to the rearing of the individual man, and among the Greeks the conditions were unusually favorable for the development of the individual, not by any means owing to the goodness of the people, but because of the struggles of their evil instincts. With the help of favorable measures, great individuals might be reared, who would be both different from, and higher than, those who heretofore have owed their existence to mere chance. Here we may still be hopeful, in the rearing of exceptional men. End quote. The notion of rearing the superman is only a new form of an ideal Nietzsche already had in his youth, that, quote, the object of mankind should lie in its highest individuals, end quote. Or as he writes in Schopenhauer as educator, quote, mankind ought constantly to be striving to produce great men. This and nothing else is its duty, end quote. But the ideals he most revered in those days are no longer held to be the highest types of men. No. Around this future ideal of upcoming humanity, the Superman, the poet spread the veil of becoming. Who can tell to what glorious heights man can still ascend? That is why, after having tested the worth of our noblest ideal, 
that of the Savior. In the light of the new valuations, the poet cries with passionate emphasis in Zarathustra, quote, Never yet hath there been a superman. Naked have I seen both of them, the greatest and the smallest man. All too similar are they still to each other. Verily, even the greatest found I all too human. End quote. The phrase, quote, the rearing of the superman, end quote, has very often been misunderstood. By the word rearing in this case is meant the act of modifying by means of new and higher values, values which, as laws and guides of conduct and opinion, are now to rule over mankind. In general, the doctrine of the superman can only be understood correctly in conjunction with other ideas of the authors, such as the order of rank, the will to power, and the transvaluation of all values. He assumes that Christianity, as a product of the resentment of the botched and the weak, has put in ban all that is beautiful, strong, proud, and powerful. In fact, all the qualities resulting from strength, and that in consequence all forces which tend to promote or elevate life have been seriously undermined. Now, however, a new table of valuations must be placed over mankind, namely that of the strong, mighty, and magnificent man, overflowing with life and elevated to his zenith, the superman, who is now put before us with overpowering passion as the aim of our life, hope, and will. And just as the old system of valuing, which only extolled the qualities favorable to the weak, the suffering, and the oppressed, has succeeded in producing a weak, suffering, and modern race, so this new and reversed system of valuing ought to rear a healthy, strong, lively, and courageous type, which would be a glory to life itself. Stated briefly, the leading principle of this new system of valuing would be, quote, All that proceeds from power is good, all that springs from weakness is bad. End quote. This type must not be regarded as a fanciful figure. It is not a nebulous hope which is to be realized at some indefinitely remote period, thousands of years hence, nor is it a new species in the Darwinian sense of which we can know nothing, and which it would therefore be somewhat absurd to strive after. But it is meant to be a possibility which men of the present could realize with all their spiritual and physical energies, provided they adopted the new values. The author of Zarathustra never lost sight of that egregious example of a transvaluation of all values through Christianity, whereby the whole of the deified mode of life and thought of the Greeks, as well as strong Romedom, was almost annihilated, or transvalued in a comparatively short time. Could not a rejuvenated Greco-Roman system of valuing once it had been refined and made more profound by the schooling which two thousand years of Christianity had provided, effect another such revolution within a calculable period of time, until that glorious type of manhood shall finally appear, which is to be our new faith and hope, and in the creation of which Zarathustra exhorts us to participate. In his private notes on the subject, the author uses the expression superman, 
always in the singular, by the by, as signifying, quote, the most thoroughly well-constituted type, as opposed to modern man. Above all, however, he designates Zarathustra himself as an example of the superman. In Echo Homo, he is careful to enlighten us concerning the precursors and prerequisites to the advent of this highest type, in referring to a certain passage in the gay science, quote, In order to understand this type, we must first be quite clear in regard to the leading physiological condition on which it depends. This condition is what I call great healthiness. I know not how to express my meaning more plainly or more personally than I have done already in one of the last chapters, aphorism, page 382, of the fifth book of the Gaia Scienza. We, the new, the nameless, the hard to understand, it says there, we firstlings of a yet untried future, we require for a new end also a new means, namely, a new healthiness, stronger, sharper, tougher, bolder, and merrier than all healthiness hitherto. He whose soul longeth to experience the whole range of hitherto recognized values and desirabilities, and to circumnavigate all the coasts of this ideal Mediterranean Sea, who, from the adventures of his most personal experience, wants to know how it feels to be a conqueror, a discoverer of the ideal, as likewise how it is with the artist, the saint, the legislator, the sage, the scholar, the devotee, the prophet, and the godly nonconformist of the old style, requires one thing above all for that purpose, great healthiness. Such healthiness as one not only possesses, but also constantly acquires and must acquire, because one unceasingly sacrifices it again and must sacrifice it. And now, after having been long on the way in this fashion, we Argonauts of the ideal, more courageous perhaps than prudent, and often enough shipwrecked and brought to grief, nevertheless dangerously healthy, always healthy again. It would seem as if, in recompense for it all, that we have a still undiscovered country before us, the boundaries of which no one has yet seen, a beyond to all countries and corners of the ideal known hitherto, a world so overrich in that beautiful, the strange, the questionable, the frightful, and the divine, that our curiosity as well as our thirst for possession thereof have got out of hand. Alas, that nothing will now any longer satisfy us. How could we still be content with the man of the present day? After such outlooks, and with such a craving in our conscience and consciousness, sad enough, but it is unavoidable that we should look on the worthiest aims and hopes of the man of the present day with ill-concealed amusement, and perhaps should no longer look at them. Another ideal runs on before us, a strange, tempting ideal, full of danger, to which we should not like to persuade anyone, because we do not so readily acknowledge anyone's right thereto the ideal of a spirit who plays naively. 
that is to say, involuntarily and from overflowing abundance and power. With everything that has hitherto been called holy, good, intangible, or divine, to whom the loftiest conception which the people have reasonably made their measure of value would already practically imply danger, ruin, abasement, or at least relaxation, blindness, or temporary self-forgetfulness. The ideal of a humanly superhuman welfare and benevolence, which will often enough appear inhuman, for example, when put alongside of all past seriousness on earth, and alongside of all past solemnities in bearing, word, tone, look, morality, and pursuit, has their truest involuntary parody, and with which, nevertheless, perhaps the great seriousness only commences when the proper interrogative mark is set up, the fate of the soul changes, the hour hand moves, and tragedy begins. End quote. Although the figure of Zarathustra and a large number of the leading thoughts in this work had appeared much earlier in the dreams and writings of the author, thus spake Zarathustra did not actually come into being until the month of August 1881 in Silsmaria, and it was the idea of the eternal recurrence of all things which finally induced my brother to set forth his new views in poetic language. In regard to his first conception of this idea, his autobiographical sketch, Eke Homo, written in the autumn of 1888, contains the following passage. Quote, the fundamental idea of my work, namely, the eternal recurrence of all things, this highest of all possible formulae of a yea-saying philosophy, first occurred to me in August 1881. I made a note of the thought on a sheet of paper, with the postscript six thousand feet beyond men and time. That day I happened to be wandering through the woods alongside the lake of Silva Plana, and I halted beside a huge pyramidal and towering rock not far from Serlier. It was then that the thought struck me. Looking back now, I find that exactly two months previous to this inspiration— I had had an omen of its coming in the form of a sudden and decisive alteration in my tastes, more particularly in music. It would even be possible to consider all Zarathustra as a musical composition. At all events, a very necessary condition in its production was the renaissance in myself of the art of hearing. In a small mountain resort, Recaro, near Vincenza, where I spent the spring of 1881, I and my friend and maestro, Peter Gast, also one who had been born again, discovered that the phoenix music that hovered over us wore lighter and brighter plumes than it had done theretofore. During the month of August 1881, my brother resolved to reveal the teaching of the eternal recurrence in diathyrambic and psalmodic form through the mouth of Zarathustra. Among the notes of this period, we found a page on which is written the first definite plan of Thus Spake Zarathustra, quote, Midday and Eternity, Guideposts to a New Way of Living. End quote. Beneath this is written, quote, Zarathustra, born on Lake Ermai, left his home in his thirtieth year, went into the province of Arya, 
and during ten years of solitude in the mountains composed the zend avesta the sun of knowledge stands once more at midday and the serpent of eternity lies coiled in its light it is your time ye midday brethren End quote. in that summer of eighteen eighty one my brother after many years of steadily declining health began at last to rally and it is to this first gush of the recovery of his once splendid bodily condition that we owe not only the gay science which in its mood may be regarded as a prelude to zarathustra but also zarathustra itself just as he was beginning to recuperate his health however an unkind destiny brought him a number of most painful personal experiences his friends caused him many disappointments which were the more bitter to him inasmuch as he regarded friendship as such a sacred institution and for the first time in his life he realized the whole horror of that loneliness to which perhaps all greatness is condemned but to be forsaken is something very different from deliberately choosing blessed loneliness how he longed in those days for the ideal friend who would thoroughly understand him to whom he would be able to say all and whom he imagined he had found at various periods in his life from his earliest youth onwards now however that the way he had chosen grew ever more perilous and steep he found nobody who could follow him he therefore created a perfect friend for himself in the ideal form of a majestic philosopher and made this creation the preacher of his gospel to the world whether my brother would ever have written thus spake zarathustra according to the first plan sketched in summer of eighteen eighty one if he had not had the disappointments already referred to is now an idle question but perhaps where zarathustra is concerned we may also say with master eckhart quote, the fleetest beast to bear you to perfection is suffering End quote. my brother writes as follows about the origin of the first part of zarathustra quote, in the winter of eighteen eighty two to eighty three i was living on the charming little gulf of rapolo not far from genoa and between chiavari and cape portofino my health was not very good the winter was cold and exceptionally rainy and the small inn in which i lived was so close to the water that at night my sleep would be disturbed if the sea were high these circumstances were surely the very reverse of favorable and yet in spite of it all as if in demonstration of my belief that everything decisive comes to life in spite of every obstacle it was precisely during this winter and in the midst of these unfavorable conditions that my zarathustra originated in the morning i used to start out in a southerly direction up the glorious road to zaukli which rises aloft through a forest of pines and gives one a view far out into the sea in the afternoon as often as my health permitted i walked round the whole bay from santa margarita to beyond portofino this spot was all the more interesting to me inasmuch as it was so dearly loved by the emperor frederick the third in the autumn of eighteen eighty six i chanced to be there again when he was revisiting this small forgotten world of happiness for the last time it was on these two roads that all zarathustra came to me above all zarathustra himself as a type 
I ought rather to say that it was on these walks that these ideas waylaid me. End quote. The first part of Zarathustra was written in about ten days. That is to say, from the beginning to about the middle of February, 1883. Quote, the last lines were written precisely in the hallowed hour when Richard Wagner gave up the ghost in Venice. End quote. With the exception of the ten days occupied in composing the first part of this book, my brother often referred to this winter as the hardest and sickliest he had ever experienced. He did not, however, mean thereby that his former disorders were troubling him, but that he was suffering from a severe attack of influenza, which he had caught in Santa Margarita, and which tormented him for several weeks after his arrival in Genoa. As a matter of fact, however, what he complained of most was his spiritual condition, that indescribable forsakenness, to which he gives such heart-rending expression in Zarathustra. Even the reception which the first part met with at the hands of friends and acquaintances was extremely disheartening, for almost all those to whom he presented copies of the work misunderstood it. Quote, I found no one ripe for many of my thoughts. The case of Zarathustra proves that one can speak with the utmost clearness and yet not be heard by anyone. End quote. My brother was very much discouraged by the feebleness of the response he was given, and as he was striving just then to give up the practice of taking hydrate of chloral, a drug he had begun to take while ill with influenza, the following spring spent in Rome was a somewhat gloomy one for him. He writes about it as follows. Quote, I spent a melancholy spring in Rome, where I only just managed to live. And this was no easy matter. This city, which is absolutely unsuited to the poet-author of Zarathustra, and for the choice of which I was not responsible, made me inordinately miserable. I tried to leave it. I wanted to go to Aquila, the opposite of Rome in every respect, and actually found it in a spirit of enmity toward that city, just as I also shall found a city some day, as a memento of an atheist and a genuine enemy of the church, a person very closely related to me, the great Hohenstaufen, the Emperor Frederick II. But fate lay behind it all. I had to return again to Rome. In the end I was obliged to be satisfied with the Piazza Barberini, after I had exerted myself in vain to find an anti-Christian quarter. I fear that on one occasion, to avoid bad smells as much as possible, I actually inquired at the Palazzo de Quirinale whether they could not provide a quiet room for a philosopher. In a chamber high above the piazza, just mentioned, from which one obtained a general view of Rome and could hear the fountains splashing far below, the loneliest of all songs was composed the night song. About this time I was obsessed by an unspeakably sad melody, the refrain of which I recognized in the words, Dead through immortality. End quote. We remained somewhat too long in Rome that spring. And what, with the effect of the increasing heat and the discouraging circumstances already described, my brother resolved not to write any more or, in any case, not to proceed with Zarathustra, although I offered to relieve him of all the trouble in connection with the proofs and the publisher. When, however, he returned to Switzerland towards the end of June, 
and he found himself once more in the familiar and exhilarating air of the mountains. All his joyous creative powers revived. And in a note to me announcing the dispatch of some manuscript, he wrote as follows, quote, I have engaged a place here for three months. Forsooth, I am the greatest fool to allow my courage to be sapped from me by the climate of Italy. Now and again I am troubled by the thought, what next? My future is the darkest thing in the world to me. But as there still remains a great deal for me to do, I suppose I ought rather to think of doing this than of my future, and leave the rest to thee and the gods. End quote. The second part of Zarathustra was written between the 26th of June and the 6th of July. Quote, this summer, finding myself once more in the sacred place where the first thought of Zarathustra flashed across my mind, I conceived the second part. Ten days sufficed. Neither for the second, the first, nor the third part have I required a day longer. End quote. He often used to speak of the ecstatic mood in which he wrote Zarathustra, how in his walks over hill and dale the ideas would crowd into his mind, and how he would note them down hastily in a notebook, from which he would transcribe them on his return, sometimes working till midnight. He says in a letter to me, quote, You can have no idea of the vehemence of such composition. End quote. And in Ecce Homo, autumn eighteen eighty eight, he describes as follows with passionate enthusiasm the incomparable mood in which he created Zarathustra. Quote, Has anyone at the end of the nineteenth century any distinct notion of what poets of a stronger age understood by the word inspiration? If not, I will describe it. If one had the smallest vestige of superstition in one, it would hardly be possible to set aside completely the idea that one is the mere incarnation, mouthpiece or medium, of an almighty power. The idea of revelation in the sense that something becomes suddenly visible and audible, with indescribable certainty and accuracy, which profoundly convulses and upsets one, describes simply the matter of fact. One hears, one does not seek, one takes, one does not ask who gives. A thought suddenly flashes up like lightning. It comes with necessity, unhesitatingly. I have never had any choice in the matter. There is an ecstasy such that the immense strain of it is sometimes relaxed by a flood of tears, along with which one's steps either rush or involuntarily lag alternately. There is the feeling that one is completely out of hand, with a very distinct consciousness of an endless number of fine thrills and quiverings to the very toes. There is a depth of happiness in which the painfulest and gloomiest do not operate as antitheses, but as conditioned, as demanded in the sense of necessary shades of color in such an overflow of light. There is an instinct for rhythmic relations which embraces wide areas of forms, length, the need of a wide, embracing rhythm is almost the measure of the force of an inspiration, a sort of counterpart to its pressure and tension. Everything happens quite involuntarily, as if in a tempestuous outburst of freedom, of absoluteness, of power and divinity. The involuntariness of the figures and similes is the most remarkable thing, 
one loses all perception of what constitutes the figure and what constitutes the simile everything seems to present itself as the readiest the correctest and the simplest means of expression it actually seems to use one of zarathustra's own phrases as if all things came unto one and would fain be similes here do all things come caressingly to thy talk and flatter thee for they want to ride upon thy back on every simile dost thou here ride to every truth here fly open unto thee all beings words and word cabinets here all being wanteth to become words here all becoming wanteth to learn of thee how to talk this is my experience of inspiration i do not doubt but that one would have to go back thousands of years in order to find someone who could say to me it is mine also End quote. in the autumn of eighteen eighty three my brother left the engadine for germany and stayed there a few weeks in the following winter after wandering somewhat erratically through stresa genoa and spezia he landed in nice where the climate so happily promoted his creative powers that he wrote the third part of zarathustra quote, in the winter beneath the halcyon sky of nice which then looked down upon me for the first time in my life i found the third zarathustra and came to the end of my task the whole having occupied me scarcely a year many hidden corners and heights in the landscapes round about nice are hallowed to me by unforgettable moments that decisive chapter entitled old and new tables was composed in the very difficult ascent from the station to Aza, that wonderful moorish village in the rocks my most creative moments were always accompanied by unusual muscular activity the body is inspired let us waive the question of the soul i might often have been seen dancing in those days without a suggestion of fatigue i could then walk for seven or eight hours on end among the hills i slept well and laughed well i was perfectly robust and patient End quote. as we have seen each of the three parts of zarathustra was written after a more or less short period of preparation in about ten days the composition of the fourth part alone was broken by occasional interruptions the first notes relating to this part were written while he and i were staying together in zurich in september eighteen eighty four in the following november while staying at Meton, he began to elaborate these notes and after a long pause finished the manuscript at nice between the end of january and the middle of february eighteen eighty five my brother then called this part the fourth and last but even before and shortly after it had been privately printed he wrote to me saying that he still intended writing a fifth and sixth part and notes relating to these parts are now in my possession this fourth part the original manuscript of which contains this note quote, only for my friends not for the public end quote, is written in a particularly personal spirit and those few to whom he presented a copy of it he pledged to the strictest secrecy concerning its contents he often thought of making this fourth part public also but doubted whether he would ever be able to do so without considerably altering certain portions of it at all events 
he resolved to distribute this manuscript production, of which only forty copies were printed, only among those who had proved themselves worthy of it, and it speaks eloquently of his utter loneliness and need of sympathy in those days, that he had occasion to present only seven copies of his book according to this resolution. Already at the beginning of this history, I hinted at the reasons which led my brother to select a Persian as the incarnation of his ideal of the majestic philosopher. His reasons, however, for choosing Zarathustra of all others to be his mouthpiece, he gives us in the following words. Quote, People have never asked me, as they should have done, what the name Zarathustra precisely means in my mouth, in the mouth of the first immoralist. For what distinguishes that philosopher from all others in the past is the very fact that he was exactly the reverse of an immoralist. Zarathustra was the first to see in the struggle between good and evil the essential wheel in the working of things. The translation of morality into the metaphysical, as force, cause, and in itself, was his work. But the very question suggests its own answer. Zarathustra created the most portentous error, morality. Consequently, he should also be the first to perceive that error, not only because he has had longer and greater experience of the subject than any other thinker. All history is the experimental refutation of the theory of the so-called moral order of things. The more important point is that Zarathustra was more truthful than any other thinker. In his teaching alone do we meet with truthfulness upheld as the highest virtue, i.e., the reverse of the cowardice of the idealist who flees from reality. Zarathustra had more courage in his body than any other thinker before or after him. To tell the truth, and to aim straight, that is the first Persian virtue. Am I understood? The overcoming of morality through itself, through truthfulness, the overcoming of the moralist through his opposite, through me. That is what the name Zarathustra means in my mouth. End quote. Elizabeth Forster Nietzsche, Nietzsche Archives, Weimar, December 1905. Notes on Thus Spake Zarathustra by Anthony M. Ludovici. I have had some opportunities of studying the conditions under which Nietzsche is read in Germany, France, and England, and I have found that in each of these countries students of his philosophy, as if actuated by precisely similar motives and desires, and misled by the same mistaken tactics on the part of most publishers, all proceed in the same happy-go-lucky style when taking him up. They have had it said to them that he wrote without any system and they very naturally conclude that it does not matter in the least whether they begin with his first, third, or last book, provided they can obtain a few vague ideas as to what his leading and most sensational principles were. Now, it is clear that the book with the most mysterious, startling, or suggestive title will always stand the best chance of being purchased by those who have no other criteria to guide them in their choice than the aspect of a title-page. And this explains why Thus Spake Zarathustra 
is almost always the first and often the only one of Nietzsche's books that falls into the hands of the uninitiated. The title suggests all kinds of mysteries. A glance at the chapter headings quickly confirms the suspicions already aroused, and the subtitle, A Book for All and None, generally succeeds in dissipating the last doubts the prospective purchaser may entertain concerning his fitness for the book, or its fitness for him. And what happens? Thus spake Zarathustra is taken home. The reader, who perchance may know no more concerning Nietzsche than a magazine article has told him, tries to read it, and understanding less than half he reads probably never gets further than the second or third part, and then only to feel convinced that Nietzsche himself was, quote, rather hazy, unquote, as to what he was talking about. Such chapters as The Child with the Mirror, In the Happy Isles, The Grave Song, Immaculate Perception, The Stillest Hour, The Seven Seals, and many others, are almost utterly devoid of meaning to all those who do not know something of Nietzsche's life, his aims, and his friendships. As a matter of fact, thus spake Zarathustra, though it is unquestionably Nietzsche's opus magnum, is by no means the first of Nietzsche's work that the beginner ought to undertake to read. The author himself refers to it as the deepest work ever offered to the German public, and elsewhere speaks of his other writings as being necessary for the understanding of it. But when it is remembered that in Zarathustra we not only have the history of his most intimate experiences, friendships, feuds, disappointments, triumphs, and the like, but that the very form in which they are narrated is one which tends rather to obscure than to throw light upon them, the difficulties which meet the reader who starts quite unprepared will be seen to be really formidable. Zarathustra, then, this shadowy allegorical personality, speaking in allegories and parables and at times not even refraining from relating his own dreams, is a figure we can understand but very imperfectly if we have no knowledge of his creator and counterpart, Friedrich Nietzsche. And it were therefore well, previous to our study of the more obtruse parts of this book, if we were to turn to some authoritative book on Nietzsche's life and works, and to read all that there is said on the subject. Those who can read German will find an excellent guide in this respect in Frau Förster Nietzsche's exhaustive and highly interesting biography of her brother, Das Leben Friedrich Nietzsches, published by Naumann, while the works of Dussain, Raoul Richter, and Baroness Isabella von Unger-Sternberg will be found to throw useful and necessary light upon many questions which it would be difficult for a sister to touch upon. In regard to the actual philosophical views expounded in this work, there is an excellent way of clearing up any difficulties they may present, and that is by an appeal to Nietzsche's other works. Again and again, of course, he will be found to express himself so clearly that all reference to his other writings may be dispensed with, but where this is not the case, the advice he himself gives is, after all, the best to be followed here, vis-a-vis -vis to regard such works as Joyful Science, Beyond Good and Evil, The Genealogy of Morals, The Twilight of the Idols, The Antichrist, The Will to Power, etc., etc., as the necessary preparation for Thus Spake Zarathustra.
These directions, though they are by no means simple to carry out, seem at least to possess the quality of definiteness and straightforwardness. Quote, follow them and all will be clear, unquote, I seem to imply. But I regret to say that this is not really the case. For my experience tells me that even after the above directions have been followed with the greatest possible zeal, the student will still halt in perplexity before certain passages in the book before us, and wonder what they mean. Now, it is with the view of giving a little additional help to all those who find themselves in this position that I proceed to put forth my own personal interpretation of the more abstruse passages in this work. In offering this little commentary to the Nietzsche student, I should like it to be understood that I make no claim as to its infallibility or indispensability. It represents but an attempt on my part, a very feeble one perhaps, to give the reader what little help I can in surmounting difficulties which a long study of Nietzsche's life and works has enabled me, partially, I hope, to overcome. Perhaps it would be as well to start out with a broad and rapid sketch of Nietzsche as a writer on morals, evolution, and sociology, so that the reader may be prepared to pick out for himself, so to speak, all passages in this work bearing in any way upon Nietzsche's views in those three important branches of knowledge. A. Nietzsche and Morality In morality, Nietzsche starts out by adopting the position of the relativist. He says there are no absolute values good and evil. These are mere means adopted by all in order to acquire power, to maintain their place in the world, or to become supreme. It is the lion's good to devour an antelope. It is the dead-leaf butterfly's good to tell a foe a falsehood. For when the dead-leaf butterfly is in danger, it clings to the side of a twig, and what it says to its foe is practically this— I am not a butterfly, I am a dead leaf, and can be of no use to thee. This is a lie which is good to the butterfly, for it preserves it. In nature every species of organic being instinctively adopts and practices those acts which most conduce to the prevalency or supremacy of its kind. Once the most favorable order of conduct is found, proved efficient and established, it becomes the ruling morality of the species that adopts it and bears them along to victory. All species must not and cannot value alike, for what is the lion's good is the antelope's evil and vice versa. Concepts of good and evil are therefore in their origin merely a means to an end. They are expedients for acquiring power. Applying this principle to mankind, Nietzsche attacked Christian moral values. He declared them to be, like all other morals, merely an expedient for protecting a certain type of man. In the case of Christianity, this type was, according to Nietzsche, a low one. Conflicting moral codes have been no more than the conflicting weapons of different classes of men. For in mankind there is a continual war between the powerful, the noble, the strong and the well-constituted on the one side, and the impotent, the mean, the weak, and the ill-constituted on the other. The war is a war of moral principles. The morality of the powerful class Nietzsche calls noble, 
or master morality. That of the weak and subordinate class he calls slave morality. In the first morality, it is the eagle which, looking down upon a browsing limb, contends that eating lamb is good. In the second, the slave morality, it is the lamb which, looking up from the sward, bleats dissentingly, eating lamb is evil. B. The master and slave morality compared. The first morality is active, creative, Dionysian. The second is passive, defensive. To it belongs the struggle for existence. Where attempts have not been made to reconcile the two moralities, they may be described as follows. All is good in the noble morality which proceeds from strength, power, health, well-constitutedness, happiness, and awfulness. For the motive force behind the people practicing it is the struggle for power. The antithesis, good and bad, to this first class means the same as noble and despicable. Bad in the master morality must be applied to the coward, to all acts that spring from weakness, to the man with an eye to the main chance, who would forsake everything in order to live. With the second, the slave morality, the case is different. There, inasmuch as the community is an oppressed, suffering, unemancipated, and weary one, all that will be held to be good which alleviates the state of suffering. Pity, the obliging hand, the warm heart, patience, industry, and humility, these are unquestionably the qualities we shall here find, flooded with the light of approval and admiration, because they are the most useful qualities. They make life endurable. They are of assistance in the struggle for existence, which is the motive force behind the people practicing this morality. To this class, all that is awful is bad. In fact, it is the evil par excellence. Strength, health, superabundance of animal spirits and power are regarded with hate, suspicion, and fear by the subordinate class. Now, Nietzsche believed that the first or the noble morality conduced to an ascent in the line of life, because it was creative and active. On the other hand, he believed that the second or slave morality, where it became paramount, led to degeneration, because it was passive and defensive, wanting merely to keep those who practiced it alive. Hence, his earnest advocacy of noble morality. C. Nietzsche and Evolution Nietzsche, as an evolutionist, I shall have occasion to define and discuss in the course of these notes. See notes on chapter 56, paragraph 10, and on chapter 57. For the present, let it suffice for us to know that he accepted the development hypothesis as an explanation of the origin of species, but he did not halt where most naturalists have halted, he by no means regarded man as the highest possible being which evolution could arrive at. For though his physical development may have reached its limit, this is not the case with his mental or spiritual attributes. If the process be a fact, if things have become what they are, then he contends we may describe no limit to man's aspirations. 
if he struggled up from barbarism and still more remotely from the lower primates his ideal should be to surpass man himself and reach superman see especially the prologue d nietzsche in sociology nietzsche as a sociologist aims at an aristocratic arrangement of society he would have us rear an ideal race honest and truthful in intellectual matters he could not even think that men are equal Quote, with these preachers of equality will i not be mixed up and confounded for thus speaketh justice unto me men are not equal End quote. he sees precisely in this inequality a purpose to be served a condition to be exploited quote, every elevation of the type man he writes in beyond good and evil has hitherto been the work of an aristocratic society and so will it always be a society believing in a long scale of gradations of rank and differences of worth among human beings those who are sufficiently interested to desire to read his own detailed account of the society he would fain establish will find an excellent passage in aphorism fifty seven of the antichrist End of Notes on Thus Spake Zarathustra by Anthony M. Ludovici. End of the introduction. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.